The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. We'd like you to give us your opinion on some clothes for teenagers. Oh, by all means, I'd be quite prepared for that eventuality. Well, not your real opinion, naturally. It'll be written out and you'll learn it. Can you read? Of course I can. I mean lines, Ducky. Can you handle lines? Well, I'll have a bash. Good. Give him whatever it is they drink. A Coca-Rama? A Well, at least he's polite. Show him the shirts, Adrian. Now, you'll like these. You'll really dig them, that cab and all the other pimply hyperboles. I wouldn't be seen dead in them. The dead grotty. Grotty? Yeah, grotesque. Make a note of that word and give it to Susan. It's rather touching, really. Here's this kid trying to give me his utterly valueless opinion when I know for a fact that within a month he'll be suffering from a violent inferiority complex and loss of status because he isn't wearing one of these nasty things. Of course they're grotty, you wretched nit. That's why they were designed, but that's what you'll want. I won't. You can be replaced, chicky baby. I don't care. And that poses out too, Sonny Jim. The new thing is to care passionately and be right wing. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 17, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be well, we may never be fashionable, Robert, but we're always going to be just right, not right wing, isn't that right? That's right, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> 519-661-3600 to join us for our conversations today, in which we'll be t- and we'll be talking about what Robert calls the Mobius strip, how the far right meets the far left. The Mobius strip of the political of the spectrum. The political spectrum, yes. And um I'm going to be talking about something I learned about on the weekend in a little more detail than I'd ever known before, and that's called postmodernism. Apparently, Robert, you and I are modernists, and everything we're fighting is called postmodernism. Well, I'm glad somebody gave it a term. Yes, and it has a useful name. At first I thought, well, I don't like it, but now I'm getting used to it. But we'll talk about that a little later. And also, today is kind of a special day. for. Or we're also going to be doing some feedback. Sorry, almost forgot that from some of our listeners. And, of course, today's a bit of a special day. You wanted to say something about that, too, Robert. Oh, yes. Today is our 250th episode. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I don't remember. What was the first date of the first show, Bob? April 19, 2007. 2007. Mm-hmm. So five years of just right. That's great. Um, I came along when? Halfway through. Yeah. About halfway through, about two and a half years ago. But this is the 250th show that you've been... You you you, ha- you were sick for at least one. Yeah, I, know, I missed a couple others. You you did them without me. Oh, so that's right. Neither yeah. of us have actually done two hundred and fifty, but the no. show's been that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we're also counting this as our fifth year. It's not the calendar year. It's our it's our CHRW radio year. We that's just, right. We just go by fifty episodes. You've actually come a long um, way if you think about it. Where your first mm-hmm. show was just simply that. It was just you uh, on CHRW uh, radio. No website. No none of the social media stuff that we have today. And we've gone from that to, um, well, me, a co-host. Um, now, you did have the chrw.ca website, um, mm-hmm. and you were on there uh, 
when the show would be archived for a week, but then it would disappear. Yeah. But I collected them, and I made sure I kept uh, an archive of them when I kind of thought we might one day, if we lasted long enough, get to be able to put them online. What I'm surprised at and amazed at is, is the... The, the way that Just Right has branched out mm-hmm. from that just that one show, you've got now a um, the website, justrightmedia.org, uh, which is a sort of a blog style, WordPress blog style. And on there, you can also click on the, it says classic site, where you'll go to where the shows were just simply listed before on the earlier website. Yeah, if you're website. used to the old site, it's still there, and all the older episodes that might not be on the new one yet are That's still right. there. Oh, yes, all yeah. of the shows are um, archived and available directly from that, justrightmedia.org. And, of course, we've gone from that to, uh, well, the social media, Twitter. Uh, we do Twitter now and then, or tweet, whatever you call it. And then on Facebook, we have a Facebook fan page at facebook.com slash justrightradio. And um, I would encourage our fans out there to go and uh, go on Facebook, look that up, and uh, like us, if you like us. And if you don't, well, <laughs> to hell with you. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, now this is the most amazing thing, is that Just Right is no longer just simply Just Right, a radio show. It is Just Right Media. And we've been getting um, a little bit more pr- uh, productive in uh, videotaping outside events, not just our own radio shows when we have guests especially, mm-hmm. which we've done in the past. Um, but also going out to other venues put on by other organizations who we, um, for one reason or another, agree with. Not always entirely, but simply that they have something valuable to say, and we go out there and we record it, and it's our production, and we put it up on YouTube at our YouTube channel, um, youtube.com slash Media. And that is taking off. Um, now, we just started it a couple of months ago in earnest, and already as you had 7,000 uh, hits, over 7,000 hits as of this morning, which is pretty good for hour-long, in most cases, uh, videos of political events. No, that's, that's awesome, actually. Yeah, I mean, at, these are look at comparable kittens videos falling elsewhere. downstairs or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is somewhat a little more intellectual and political in, in scope, and to have uh, those many hits in just a couple of months is pretty good. You know, it's interesting you say that we do, we do interview a lot of people who we might not always agree with on things, but they generally are people on the right of what most people would regard the right wing. Yes. Again, that's yeah. going to be part of our conversation today, too. Yeah. And Just to uh, give an example, I mean, International Free Press Society, Sure. Um, they've, they've hosted a number of guests, including uh, Lord Moncton, uh, Ann Coulter. Um, oh, hosts of them. A whole host My of point, them. My point, though, Essex. that I'm getting to is that that's really where any debate is in, in oh, the it's always on the right. It's always on what we would call the right, the people yeah. on that portion of the right. On the left, there's, there's no debate, right. there's simply violence. <laughs> and right. As a matter of fact, I'll illustrate that later on in the show, how the right talk about things, the left simply smash things. Interesting. Just to be general about it. Yeah. Hmm. Well, we have been getting some feedback. So, on the congratulations show. Oh. on your 250th oh, you. show, Bob. Thank you. And, uh, well, thanks for joining, and uh, I think we'll see if we make another 250. Oh, my goodness. Oh, don't let me forget here that not only do we have our Just Right uh, branding, but both you and I have our own sort of offshoot, much like when the Beatles broke up, they uh, went solo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have your own blog at robertmetz.ca. Yeah, trying to get it started. You're on Facebook, though uh, mm. you're not that up on it. <laughs> I think the last post you made was uh, six weeks ago. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, robertvaughn.ca is my blog, and I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Google+. Excellent. Yeah. So if anybody wants to go there and like us or whatever, that'd be fun. Excellent. Well, some people seem to like us. We've been getting some feedback. 
by email. thought I'd just go over a few of the highlights. Couldn't get to all of it, but we do read all of it. Uh, like Ben Z here says, just says he loves the show, and he wrote that on one day, and then the next day he said, I've got a, spar- a Star Wars-inspired slogan for the show. It goes like this. Tired of the dark and light side? Try the right side. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thanks for that, Ben. It's the forest, Ben. That's what it is. Here's one from Dr. Cressamir J. Hi, Robert and Robert. Wow, I have just recently discovered the show. I've been a fan of Ayn Rand, freedom and objectivism since I read Atlas Shrugged about three years ago. It has been difficult changing my personal philosophy. So to keep things short, I'd like to thank you and applaud your efforts for saying what needs to be said. I completely understand how difficult it is. I wish I could tell you. Uh, I wish I could tell I have always been successful in speaking the message of freedom and quote-unquote selfishness to others, but it hasn't always gone that way. And uh, that's an interesting letter there. You know, it is a learning experience for for sure, especially when you're finding yourself having to reassess your own views on on things along the way, right? But um, that's part of doing this show. I found one of the best ways to learn stuff is trying to explain it to others, teach it to others, you know, just report it. Sometimes we get, like, what we're getting into today, I didn't know about until less than a week ago. But, uh, you know, what you have to make sure is you don't come across with this sense of trying to convert people. I gave up that long ago. Because you don't have to win every argument. Disagreement is fine, because at the very least, just to say I disagree with someone shakes the complacency of those people who believe what they believe in just because others around them do. Right, so that's that has its own value, but you know, really take care with your expectations. You know, promoting a philosophy isn't exactly like promoting or selling a physical product, in one basic respect, and that's that philosophy strikes at the core of what defines us as individuals, and at the core of what defines a culture, and these are two things you can't really influence directly, whether affirmatively or negatively, in any kind of short-term effort, that's for sure. Cultural philosophical trends in particular, unlike the fashions and music and clothes that can change almost overnight, these take centuries to resolve themselves. And even then, the fundamental debates and conflicts will never end, as we'll see later on in the show today. So it's kind of an eternal vigilance situation. Now, a couple of responses to last week's show. Remember what we talked about last week? Um, No, it's ancient (laughs) history. It was the the propaganda against Nazi propaganda. And we talked about whether Hitler used fluoride should London. Um, We took an offense against offense. And we talked about how government debt helped create the Holocaust against Germany's uh, Jews during the last World War. Um, In fact, we're going to continue a bit of that theme today because it really overlaps uh, what we're going to be talking about today. But Rob S. writes, a great show, guys. Thanks much. The comparisons are startling. I think he was talking about what's happening here today and what was happening in Germany in the 1930s, which I think we're going to be talking about a bit again today, aren't we, Robert? Yes. Yep. And, yeah, uh, thanks for that, Rob. The red game is always the same, just the players change from time to time. But even, here's the weird part, as we'll find out later, sometimes the players don't change. It's the same people we're dealing with, even over the centuries. And then we got an interesting letter from, uh, this is from our um, Euro correspondent, Paul Lambert, who responded uh, to our show last week. And he, the thing that you said about Godwin's Law, and the title on his email was Godwin's Stupid Brainless Law. <laughs> and he writes, Dear Bob and Robert, before I start going off about Godwin's Law in particular, 
It is important to remember that comparisons to the Nazis only serve to end a discussion when the comparison is made about a leftist. Leftists themselves make uh, a a a prolific use of labeling people as Nazis. Let's not forget the all-too-quick comparisons that were made with the Austrian Freedom Party and the late Jörg Haider. As well, how how long do we have to wait between instances of hearing the accusation of Israel being a Nazi state? On the other hand, I have been accused of being, quote, just like Hitler because I don't like labor unions. The fact the young woman accusing me was a vegetarian was something I could have used if I, if I were to sink to the same level. It seems that comparisons to Hitler are only taboo if they are apt, but perfectly okay if they are ridiculous. As for Godwin's law, few things irritate me the way Godwin's law does. His stupid law dates back to 1990. He's a mere zygote in the field of rhetoric. It is time to retire this concept held dear by a bunch of computer-bound nerds with no life, suffering from delusions of intellectual adequacy. If the jackboot fits, wear it. Well said, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Wow. And, of course, Paul's uh, in Sweden. I think those jackboots are a bit too tight for me. But sadly, you know, a lot of people don't seem to mind putting on the jackboots figuratively speaking, and apparently those people have a name, and they're called postmodernist, <laughs> which is what we're going to be talking about uh, shortly. And, in fact, I guess it's what we talked about last week in a way without even knowing about it, from the debate on fluoride to the hysteria raised over bringing up Germany and Hitler in the debate. You know, these were almost explicit examples of postmodernism. So this week we will continue our sounding of our red alert against these poisonous ideas that are being promoted, especially in the political realm. Only this time I think we're going to be taking it to a different level. So let's, let us once again put aside any fears of examining Hitler and the Nazi question because both Hitler and the Nazis were symptoms not causes, of something even more sinister, which is my subtle way of saying more left, (laughs) the ideas that led them to their self-destruction and to which no society is immune. I actually believe that. I don't think there's any society that's immune to what happened to Germany. And um, there is more left of the show as we will continue our discussion right after this. This is how history went after McCoy changed it. Here... In the late 1930s, a growing pacifist movement whose influence delayed the United States' entry into the Second World War. While peace negotiations dragged on, Germany had time to complete its heavy water experiments. Germany. Fascism. Hitler. One Second World War. Because all this lets them develop the A-bomb first. There's no mistake, Captain. Let me run it again. Edith Keeler, founder of the peace movement. But she was right. Peace was the way. She was right, but at the wrong time. With the A-bomb and with their V-2 rockets to carry them, Germany captured the world. How? Oh. Immanuel Kant died in 1804, and not long before he died, in one of his uh, final essays, he titled the essay, Was ist Aufklärung? What is Enlightenment? And um, 
his conclusion was that enlightenment was synonymous with freedom. Uh, I shall get to this in the next lecture on, on Kant. Um, was ist Aufklärung? What is enlightenment? So here is one of the central figures of the Enlightenment, one of the central figures of the German Enlightenment, recognizing that he is the product of an age that has earned the sobriquet Enlightenment. The question uh, that arises sometimes in scholarly discourse about Kant is whether the best way to understand Kant is that he, he provides sort of the culmination of Enlightenment thought, or whether, in fact, he's really bringing down the curtain on it and showing that um, many of its uh, loftiest aspirations are entirely impossible because grounded in a certain kind of mistake. Well, I say this is a rich, uh, fertile ground for Kant scholarship, and Kant scholarship is among the most actively pursued in contemporary philosophy. Uh, Kant was widely read. He was not widely traveled. There he lived in Königsberg all his life. Uh, it is said that he never went more than 50 miles from his front door. A man of very methodical habit. It's uh, well known that people could set their clocks by when Kant uh, was prepared to take lunch. Um, he had a housemaid. He, there, there is a student whose memoir records the fact that uh, Professor Kant could be a quite affable and genial host and that indeed he even had a sense of humor. Evidence for Kant's humor is not abundant in his philosophical writings, but then, uh, as the comedians say, I guess you'd have to be there. I guess we had to be there. <laughs> and of course, Immanuel Kant was the one of the key philosophers that Ayn Rand put on her red hit list, you know, of the people that she would hold most responsible for some of the poisonous ideas that have taken hold of society today. Well, up till this past weekend, I was not really aware of the publications of a fellow named Stephen Hicks, whose articles appear in the Wall Street Journal and Baltimore Sun. He's a native of Toronto, Canada, professor of philosophy at Rockford College in Illinois, and interestingly, among some of the others, other books he's published, one is called Nietzsche and the Nazis. But the one I want to talk about today is called Explaining Postmodernism. Not exactly the most exciting title of, of a book, but uh, it was given to me for my birthday when we had a birthday celebration. It's, it's May, this is the time of month I get all my books. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I started reading that one and I said, wow, I can't believe the timing. Because um, this book focused on the bigger picture in a way that we do here, but in a nicely summarized way, looking at a lot of the, uh, what we call the postmodern uh, philosophers. And, and some of them are contemporary, as you discovered yesterday when you went online, to see how recent some of them were. Yes. And some, of course, go back a few centuries. But, um, you know, it's a great book, I think, to get the fundamentals of any sort of red alert campaign going. Originally published in 2004, my copy is a 2011 version, which has two extra chapters, one on free speech and one on art. And uh, the book is called Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault. <laughs> so, in attempting to explain what postmodernism is, I think I'm going to start doing it in my own words. I think that might be the easiest way to start, not necessarily the authors, because I could go into detail on this book, Robert, and we could be caught up for the whole show, easy, and not get to even a touch of what's in there. My impression is that postmodernism and the other two terms relative to it, pre-modernism and modernism, so there's just modernism, post and pre, okay, that's, that's your three 
terms. But he uses them, and, and they're not just his terms. I've seen them. You'll see them online if you look them up, and they're all generally in the same way of thinking. But they're terms that define a culture. It's like a cultural marker. And a culture is a body of knowledge and values that sort of define a particular society's actuality and its potential. The culture determines whether its individuals are able to live in an environment of freedom or end up living in one of tyranny, with all the things that each of those things inevitably imply. And so we talk about uh, the freedom culture. We've used that term ourselves here on the show, eh? And um, that culture we talk about is based on reality, reason, self, and consent. And that's the culture that the author, Stephen Hicks, would call modernism. So you and I are modernists. Or mods, for short. Yeah, mods. <laughs> <laughs> like the George Harrison clip at the opening no, he's of a the rocker. show. <laughs> but, uh, so we're the modernists, and postmodernism is the intellectual and social trend of today. It's that red sea of communism and irrationality that we keep talking about. And it's currently shared pretty much by all political parties. So if you're wondering about how to, to visualize this, he gives many examples, and I've just picked a few here, of what he means by the contrast between the modern and the postmodern. And here's a couple of examples. Whether, here, here's how the debate would be framed, because he says the whole thing's about framing the debate. And the debate would be framed... Uh, modernist, whether the United States of America is, a, is progressive on liberty, equalities and opportunities for everyone, or postmodernist, whether it is sexist, racist, class-bound, e.g. using its mass market pornography and glass ceilings to keep women in their place. That's the postmodernist view. Sounds crazy on the face of it, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Well, when continue, you hear that kind of continue. argument? Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Another one. Whether... Social conflicts, this is the modernist view, should be diffused by encouraging the principle that individuals should be judged according to their individual merits and not according to morally irrelevant features such as race or sex. Or, postmodernist, whether group identities should be affirmed and celebrated and whether those who balk at doing so should be sent to mandatory sensitivity training. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> or, whether modernist view, science and technology are good for all extending our knowledge of the universe and making the world healthier, cleaner, and more productive. It's one of the reasons we talk about a lot about science and tech on this show. Or, postmodernist, whether science betrays its elitism, sexism, and destructiveness by making the speed of light the fastest phenomenon, thereby unfairly privileging it over other speeds, by having chosen the phallic symbol I to represent the square root of negative one, by asserting its desire to conquer nature and penetrate her secrets, quote, quote, and having done so by having its technology consummate the rape by building bigger and longer missiles to blow things up. And another one. Whether modernist in general, liberalism, free markets, technology, and cosmopolitanism are social achievements that can be enjoyed by all cultures, or postmodernist, whether non-Western cultures, since they live simply and in harmony with nature, are superior, and whether the West is arrogantly blind to that fact, being elitist and imperialistic, imposing its capitalism, its science, its technology, and its ideology upon other cultures in an increasingly fragile ecosystem. So that's kind of a comparison of a few arguments as they would appear in the modernist point of view and how a uh, postmodernist debate would occur. I'm beginning to understand that, yeah. I can so that's see why the, the distinction. Post, that's why the postmodernist debates seem so irrelevant to most people. They are literally about nothing, as we shall learn. Very Seinfeld of them. Yes. <laughs> 
So why postmodern, and this is the writer speaking, what makes all of these debates postmodern is not that the skirmishes are vigorous and heated, but that the terms of the debate have shifted. Modern debates, our debates, were over truth and reality, reason and experience, liberty and equality, justice and peace, beauty and progress. In the postmodern framework, truth, quote-unquote, is a myth. Reason, quote-unquote, is a white male Eurocentric construct. Equality is a mask for oppression. Peace and progress are met with cynical and weary reminders of power or explicit ad hominem attacks. Objectivity is a myth. There is no truth, no right way to read nature or to read a text. All interpretations are equally valid. Values are socially subjective products. Culturally, therefore, no group's values have special standing. All ways of life from Afghani to Sulu are legitimate. Postmodernism rejects the reason and the individualism that the entire Enlightenment world depends upon, and so it ends up attacking all of the consequences of the Enlightenment philosophy, from capitalism and liberal forms of government to science and technology. Postmodernism's essentials are anti-realism, linguistic social subjectivism, various race, sex, and class groupisms, conflict and oppression, communalism, solidarity, and egalitarian restraints. Postmodernism, therefore, is a comprehensive philosophical and cultural movement. Why is it that the skeptical and relativistic arguments have the cultural power that they do now? Why do they have that power in the humanities but not in the sciences? Why is it that the leading postmodern thinkers are left in their politics, in most cases, far left, end quote? And that's basically his description of postmodernism. Given those and descriptions and definitions, mm-hmm. why would anybody in the right mind choose... In their right to, mind? <laughs> yeah, or their left mind choose to be a postmodernist. Well, it seems so destructive. It does, doesn't it? And you can see it in action. It, what's going on in Greece? We'll be talking about examples later on oh, in the show. Got a lot Lots of them. them, and we'll be hearing some. Some of this stuff sounds so nuts that you can't believe it until you hear it out of the people's mouths themselves. And, you know, the villains behind this, as I learned from this book, and I've learned through philosophy, are the same, uh, mostly German, and some French philosophers who led Germany into its Holocaust, actually. You know, Ayn Rand used to warn us of this constantly, but not too many people hear or understand the message. You know, Hitler and the Nazis were not the cause of the Holocaust. They were the inevitable consequence of the ideas that were both preached and practiced in the Germany of his day. Just like, you know, Obama is not the cause of runaway government uh, spending or socialism in the States. They're the consequence of the predominant cultural ideas in the United States today. Now, having said what I just said, a postmodernist might argue, hey, are you comparing Obama to Hitler? You can't do that. That's offensive. That's simply going too far. Over the line. Heard that somewhere before? (laughs) To which I would, as a modernist, be forced to accept reality as I am. I'm also forced to reply, yeah, I am comparing the two. But I'm accusing neither of them as being the direct cause of the negative consequences of their political actions. Negative consequences are those that lead us towards tyranny, and that's what I mean by that, and away from freedom. And after having had a week to reflect on last week's show and what I've read since, I've concluded there's two forms of moral denial that accompany the the you-can't-bring-up-the-Hitler-or-Nazis argument. On the one hand, there are those who want to deny the fact that their ideas are the cause of the horrors they see, or the things they even object to. So blame the leader, blame his agents, not the ideas and actions implemented by the public will through its system of government. 
instead of accepting responsibility for one's moral standard and changing that standard to adapt to reality. On the other hand, there are those who today and now fully accept the philosophical premise of a totalitarian state, who do not want to see their ideas raised or discussed in an open public forum. So Hitler or Nazi talk is kind of sensitive to them, right? They don't want it, they don't want it raised because it gets a little close to home. Now, this is kind of important. I'm not even sure how I can express this well. It seems almost as whether they're in denial or they don't understand why they are sensitive to some of this themselves, which is why I think when, for example, Megan Walker was trying to explain why she was offended uh, with Steve Orser last week, you know, the only reason she could come up with was that was a statistic that the Nazis killed between 11 and 17 million people, which is a non-reason for being offended, you know, then or today. So you have to fill in the intellectual and reason vacuum with emotionalism and ad hominem. And that's exactly what they did. Sure, just to okay. be compared to, to Hitler doesn't mean you're going to annex the Sudetenland tomorrow. No, no. <laughs> it's a warning. It's, it's a warning of a policy. Now, it can be taken personally, but that's how people have been taught to take it, take it because that's the postmodernist view. They want you to think about it that way. They don't want you to understand the essentials. They want you to look at the superficial and react mm. like a child that's literally where you're stuck. And again, from explaining postmodernism, um, Immanuel Kant, which is the main, one of the main philosophers behind this, held that the mind and not reality sets the terms for knowledge, and he held that reality conforms to reason, not vice versa. In the history of philosophy, Kant marks a fundamental shift from objectivity to subjectivity. Wait a minute, a defender of Kant may reply. He was hardly opposed to reason. After all, he favored rational consistency, and he believed in universal principles. So what's so anti-reason about that? The answer is that more fundamental to reason than consistency and universality is a connection to reality. Any thinker who concludes that in principle reason cannot know reality is not fundamentally an advocate of reason. Once reason is in principle severed from reality, then you're in a different philosophical universe altogether. The key point about Kant, to draw an analogy crudely, is that he prohibits knowledge of anything outside our skulls, <laughs> end quote. So that's uh, where we'll end up at the bottom of the hour here. We've got to go to a break. Now, starring James Mason, have you seen the movie, uh, The Desert Fox? Uh, many, many years ago. Yes, he, he played Nazi uh, field, field marshal uh, Rommel from the movie The Desert Fox, which is what we're going to hear now. And here he's confronted by his close friend to almost... He's almost asking him the same question that you asked just a little earlier. Why would people choose this crazy idea? Now here, today we're witnessing a disaster in Greece and other countries, and yet you don't see very much will to go the other way. And here we have uh, a German you know, general who understood the evil that Hitler was and was still willing to follow him. Why would he do that? That's the question that's asked. We'll be back after, back after this. February of 1944, during one of Rommel's rare absences from the Atlantic frontier, his old friend, Dr. Karl Strollin, sought him out again. But I want to talk to you without being overheard. About what? About the Hitler situation. If this is politics, Strollin, I don't want to hear it. Had you rather see Germany destroyed? It's not a matter I want to discuss, I tell you. And I'm surprised at you. That's a, that's a communist position. Oh, is it? Defeat against him, all that sort of thing. United. 
Would you call General Beck a communist? Of course not. Or Karl Girdler, the Lord Mayor of Leipzig? I've never heard that he was. What about Falkenhausen? No, but... What about Heinrich von Stupnagel? No. Von Neurath and von Hassel, are they communists? Are you trying to tell me seriously that men like that are questioning his leadership? Not just questioning it. They intend to end it. You mean you've talked to those fellows yourself? To them and to many others, and not only soldiers either. Churchmen, labor leaders, lawyers, doctors. Members of the government even. Not too many of them, but sound men. Every one of them. How long has this been going on? Since 38. And what exactly are you after? One, we want to get rid of Hitler and his gang. If we are to be defeated, then we prefer to be defeated as human beings, not as barbarians. Two, whether we win or lose, we want to live again like decent people, without fear. Look, Strode, I don't want to get mixed up in this thing. What they do in Berlin is their business, not mine. I'm a soldier, not a politician. You still think you're perfectly safe? Who knows who's safe and who's not in a situation like this? I'm a sane man, you'd know. That's a lot of rubbish. And you know it. Afraid even to think about it. Stop talking to me as if I were a child and you were schoolmaster. Don't you think I know what you mean? But what of it? Who asked me for my opinion? And suppose I told them what I thought, that what they're doing beyond every other consideration is stupid to the point of imbecility. Who do you think would listen to me? Have you ever tried? Of course. I've been told to mind my own business. And who's to say they're not right? Surely you are naive enough to think that a soldier must approve of every detail of his government before he can fight for it? What army could exist like that with every man in it free to decide what he will or won't do? The truth is that a soldier has but one function in life, one lone excuse for existence, and that is to carry out the order of his superiors. The rest, including government, is politics. And if I must remind you again, I'm a soldier, not a politician. What the government does... Oh, stop hiding behind that bloody uniform of yours. What do I care about your philosophy of the soldier? All it means to me is that you're terrified and hiding under a lot of rubbish about the functions of a robot. Have you forgotten that I've known you for 20 years? Why, I know exactly how you feel about that abomination in Berlin. What I can't understand is this chicken-hearted willingness to go marching right down into hell with the beasts you loathe and despise. Where's all the sense and courage you have in the field? Haven't you any of it here? I think you'd better get out of this house. Now. Yes, the, ne the next questioner is at the microphone on my right. First of, first of all, may I make a statement instead of a question? A short statement, short statement, and then maybe a question. As long as it's short, yeah. as long as it ends in a question. Okay, yes. first of all, I'm offended by the morality of the debate itself. We presume that socialism is what it's supposed to mean and not what is meant in the mind of so many people. So, in other words, socialism is connected with gulag, uh, Ukraine famine or whatever and capitalism is meant with uh, the you know the 19th century starvation of the masses okay that's not what I came here for that's I came here for the moral for simply for the, the moral aspect of it and on the, I'm going to talk 
about the morality. Uh, <laughs> my question is, he, the professor, he should not be called professor because in, uh, in the realm of an animal, maybe you can be professor, but in, in the realm of a human being cannot be professor on anything, or anything. The capitalist side there, the capitalist side, especially the one who said, the one who said that life, uh, morality, uh, morality is defined by the rational self-interest or self, uh, self-interest. Okay. okay. I would like to only to, to no, beg I, him to, to carry that to the extreme consequences. No, no, I want, I, want, I want the question though. In California now, I want, I want the question. mothers are selling their children to, for self-interest, for pornography right now. I, wi I wish, why is mother didn't sell him for pornography? That's the question. Why, he, if it, life is determined by self-interest, why is mother is not, is, did sell him for pornographic industry? I'm sorry to say that the I'm sorry to say that the hysteria and the form in which that question was asked is a direct result of the fact that people put forth the ethics of self-sacrifice on religious grounds as though it's a revelation. Consequently, people do not even believe that moral issues can be open to reason, and if they disagree, they resort to vilification and apoplexy. That is a, a sign of a wrong approach to the entire subject of ethics. If I translate that question, I'll do what I want with my two minutes. Would you ask him to be quiet? No, you, no, you, no, no. You, you, you had the floor, and the speaker must have the floor. If I were to translate that question into something resembling intelligibility. <laughs> say he's asking are you saying that an advocate of selfishness can do anything do you believe whatever you feel you should do regardless of how it runs roughshod over other people and if he had asked the question that way he would have seen that I already answered that by saying that selfishness does not equal doing whatever you feel like you might feel like cutting your throat or jumping off a cliff that does not make it something which redounds to your self-interest your self-interest has to be objectively, rationally defined. It has to be in accordance with the requirements of your nature. And it has to respect the equal right of every other human being. I said over and over, selfishness is not running loose like some kind of monster. That is simply the movie image put forth by altruists in order to try to dismiss this issue. Selfishness is a perfectly rational, if you are rational, you live to achieve your life by certain definite means, you respect the rights of others and you trade. That's it. You want to do this? I don't know what you're talking about. I'd like to do it. That's you. That was uh, Professor Leonard Peikoff back in 1984 at the University of Toronto. Uh, at a debate called Debate 84, good, good name for it, hosted by Peter Deborah. And, of course, the questioner there was what we would call a postmodernist. 
asking a question both that is postmodernist in its philosophy and in its delivery. No kidding. I mean, the way he delivered that was without any respect for the form of the venue and without any respect of the moderator or the uh, Professor Peacock. And I have to say, the two opponents, and we've played clips from this before, um, Jill Vickers and uh, Jerry Kaplan, both of the NDP, were exactly like that fellow. I'm not surprised. And, you know, and there's, uh, there's Leonard Peikoff saying, I said over and over. You can say over and over all you want, and they're just not listening because they don't want to listen. Because basically what's at the root of their problem is they want, they want to have something for nothing. Some of the questions that were asked were just stunning. But it certainly speaks to the phenomenon that Stephen Hicks brought up in his book, which we were talking about before the break, and that is called Explaining Postmodernism. He has one chapter in there that's very interesting. I just want to get in before we go to our next break. It's about the philosopher Martin Heidegger. And he says, Martin Heidegger, another German philosopher, of course, is notorious for the obscurity of his prose and for his actions and and inactions on behalf of the National Socialists during the 1930s. And he is unquestionably the leading 20th century philosopher for the postmodernists. Heidegger absorbed and modified the tradition of German philosophy. Nothing, wrote Heidegger, and he he means nothing, the concept of nothing, not merely provides the conceptual opposite of what is, but is also an original part of essence, end quote. Heidegger cre- credited Hegel with having reclaimed this lost insight for the Western tradition. Quote, pure being and pure nothing are thus one and the same. So, after abandoning reason and logic, after experiencing real boredom and terrifying dread, we re- unveil the final mystery of mysteries, he writes, nothing. In the end, all is nothing, and nothing is all. With Heidegger, we reach metaphysical nihilism, which is what the whole movement is about, right? And he also says, you know, he says, postmodernism does not have to get the girl in the end. Destroying Othello is enough. Showing that a movement leads to nihilism is an important part of understanding it, as is showing how a failing and nihilistic movement can still be dangerous. Yet identifying postmodernism's roots and connecting them to contemporary bad consequences does not refute postmodernism. So maybe we're wasting our time here trying to refute it, isn't you think? What is still needed is a refutation of those historical premises and an identification and defense of the alternatives to them. The Enlightenment was based on premises opposite to those of postmodernism, but it articulated and defended them only incompletely. That weakness is the sole source of postmodernism's power against it. Completing the articulation and defense of those premises is therefore essential to maintaining the forward progress of the Enlightenment vision and shielding it against postmodern strategies. And isn't that what we do a lot here on this show, Robert? <laughs> yes, I think so. I think so, too. Time for a break. We shall continue on the other side. Since the old style, the presently existing intellectuals, have declared their own bankruptcy by abandoning the intellect, what we need today, what I call the new intellectual, would be any man or woman who is willing to think. Meaning, any man or woman who knows that man's life must be guided by reason, by the intellect, not by feelings, wishes, whims, or mystic revelations. Any man or woman who values his life and who does not want to give in to today's cult of despair, cynicism, and impotence, and does not intend to give up the world to the dark ages and to the rule of the collectivist brutes.
Greetings, GIs. This is your favorite enemy, Axis Annie, over Radio Berlin. I've got a very special show for you today, fellows. So stand by, all you handsome losers. Here's a little advice from Axis Annie. When you bail out, don't fight. Play it smart. Give up. Have you ever witnessed any mistreatment of prisoners of war? Only once. It happened to me. You see, I am a cook, and I was making a tournoi de Rossini. They confiscated my mushrooms. Any reason? Jealousy. I would hardly call that inhuman treatment. You would if you were a Frenchman. <laughs> and to continue our talking about uh, modernism and postmodernism, I'm going to be talking a little bit about what the far right is, the far left. And um, consider what Bob has just been saying about postmodernism when we talk about um, the movements going on over in Europe and here in Canada as well. And I'm going to call this little segment the Mobius Strip of the Political Spectrum, where the far right meets the far left, because to me a political spectrum, at least the ones that we're familiar with, seems to be um, all on the left, if you want to look at it that way. And if you're going to be talking about the right, it's an inversion of the left, and they meet not unlike a Mobius strip. The way the terms are being used now. Yes. Yeah. Just consider the recent rise of popularity in Greece of the Golden Dawn Party, which has at the center of its platform the expulsion of illegal immigrants and how it's prompted the media to print several exposés on the supposed far-right political movements in Europe. Now, the London Free Press printed a graphic just a couple of days ago revealing what is called far-right Pollocks, uh, party politics. Couldn't politics. believe it when I saw yeah. that. And it, and it was in a red box, conveniently enough. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> All of the parties held anti-immigration as their distinguishing plank to set them apart from the traditional parties in Europe. Yet, to my knowledge, none of the parties conformed to the definition of far-right politics which the graphic displays. Now, mind you, none to my knowledge, except maybe perhaps for the new Greek uh, Golden Dawn Party, which I'm not that familiar with, so I can't include them, though they probably um, won't meet this definition either. And their definition of far-right politics is thus. It involves strong support of social hierarchy, supports supremacy of certain individuals or groups deemed to be superior to others, claims that superior people should have greater rights than inferior people, usually involves anti-immigration and anti-integration stances towards groups that are deemed inferior and undesirable. Now, from my reading of any of these groups, from Heert Wilders' uh, Party of Freedom in the Netherlands to um, uh, Britain's British National Party, none of those descriptions actually fit that um, moniker of being far-right. And yet they were included in that list. Oh, yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, all of these parties mm -hmm. um, from... Well, they, they included Norway, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Switzerland, Austria, France, Belgium, Netherlands, Britain, and Greece. Now, like I say, I'm not too familiar with the, with the Golden Dawn Party. They seem to be a little wacko to me, so I wouldn't put it past them to talk in terms of superiority versus inferiority. So, But I'll leave that um, for another analysis. Now, with the possible exception of that one party, which is, uh, like I say, new to me, parties in Europe that claim any group is superior to other, that doesn't happen. I have never heard that. This is a deception, and I find it to be telling of the media. Telling because it reveals their true biases. The media are pro-immigration. There's no doubt about it. But to be precise about the parties in the media when they speak of immigration, they're speaking particularly of the immigration of Islamists. The so-called far-right party 
want it stopped as they properly identify radical Islam as being incompatible with the long tradition of individual rights and freedoms associated with Western Europe. The media encourage immigration of Muslims for that same reason. The true so-called far right actually can be defined more appropriately as having characteristics of the government of fascist Italy under Mussolini or of Nazi Germany under Hitler. While anti-immigration is only one element of both of these states, it pales in comparison to the myriad of other identifiers, identifiers that have been conveniently forgotten by today's media and the intelligentsia. And you referred to this earlier in the show, Bob, Mm -hmm. how they seem to have selective amnesia when it comes to talking about uh, Hitler's Germany or Mussolini's Italy. The fascist states of Germany and Italy were both socialists. That's the key element they conveniently forget. They both held views on economics and politics and society that all of the leaders of the world today have adopted in their entirety. In fact, if Hitler and Mussolini were to rise from the dead and stand upon our streets today, other than the multi-ethnic diversity which is so apparent, they would declare victory. Today's socialist states, of which Canada is one, have adopted all of the socialist ideals of Hitler and Mussolini. In fact, we've gone so much farther than they did in our intrusion into the personal lives of our citizens. We tax greater, we regulate greater, we monitor greater, we incarcerate greater than any fascist dictator before us, especially in the United States. But the racist element, I'm sorry, but for the racist element, the world today is a fascist dystopia which would have made the Nazis proud. But it's not just economic theories we share with the fascist states of the past. There are other parallels which can lead us to conclude that history is repeating itself and that we may very well be on the brink of a great upheaval costing millions of lives and fortunes. And one of the greatest precipitating factors leading to the rise of Hitler was the onerous reparations they were forced to pay for starting World War I. By the way, the reparations were calculated to be half of all the gold mined in history. <laughs> oh, my goodness. 100,000 tons of gold. Obviously, they could not repay it. And they, uh, Another interesting fact is that um, they finally made their last payment, by the way, just uh, two years ago. No kidding. They were paying that off, that reparations, up until 2010. Oh. So the war's over. Or another one's ready to start now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The currency concerns of the euro and Greece may be different in origin, but the impact could be just as incendiary as the war reparations that Germany had to make. Already, there's a run on the banks in Greece and in Spain. The euro is failing and there's rioting in the streets as generations of entitled, spoiled, rotten layabouts fare they may actually have to go out and work to feed themselves. Consider the growing anti-Semitism as the young side with the terrorists of Hamas and Hezbollah in their war against Israel. If we tell that the Muslim Brotherhood had been founded by the, uh, had been funded rather by the Third Reich in Egypt, and that the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem in the 30s and 40s allied himself and his Arab followers with Nazi Germany to help exterminate the Jews, I don't think it would change their minds. No. You know, when they know the facts about the, the evil nature of these organizations, uh, it doesn't seem to phase them. Consider as well the anti-Zionist boycotts of Canadian union leaders. We've talked about that in the past as well, about Sid Ryan and his uh, anti-Zionist rhetoric. The black bloc foot soldiers of the Occupy movement 
and of the clandestine anonymous group that have um, become the stormtroopers of today's fascists. For many of them, blatant anti-Semitism isn't quite fashionable, so they target the rich instead. Kristallnacht comes with every opportunity as they smash storefronts just as the brown shirts of Hitler did in 1938. Protesting Quebec students are violent reminders of how the violent left are in fact the same far-right socialists that destroyed Europe 60 years ago. The capitulation of the education minister in Quebec is a testament to the power of the mob over a government which is actually... That surprised me. Just read about it this morning. It it shows a testament to the power of the mob over a government which in actuality shares the mob's philosophy of egalitarianism. And that's why she capitulated. It's because she actually agrees with the mob you know, mm-hmm. is torn between giving them what they want and, and, and acting on their own. Because the mob, to that minister, is the intellect, intelligentsia. It's, it's, it's a shame, actually. That's why they allow the protests to continue, why they give the, in to their demands. They're on the two sides of the same battle. Mm-hmm. Or the same side of the same battle, rather. Consider the recent election of Francois Hollande as the new president of France who has vowed to tax anyone making over $250,000, 75%. That's pure fashion by any textbook definition. Well, yeah, I've, I've, I've been reading about that, and, and it's really interesting. As in The Economist, they speak of his background. He's the son of a doctor and social worker, a lifetime spent on public sector safe uh, payroll as either an elected rep or civil servant and suit him perfectly for the modern socialist party, which is heavily reliant on the support of state employees, in particular teachers, which he just hired 60,000 more teachers. Oh, did he really? Yes. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Because teachers pay union dues. Right, and the union pays him. The comparisons of today's current events to the upheaval Europe and the world experienced 60 years ago continue. The violent Muslim ghettos in France, Belgium, England, Netherlands, Germany, where gangs of youths rape and pillage with impunity. The massive bailouts of unproductive companies by the President of the United States who has spent, in his first term, more than every other U.S. administration before him combined. Wow. Every single U.S. administration before Obama spent less than Obama just has in his first term. Consider that. The sold-out venue... We're going to have to, aren't we? Whether we want to think about it or not, something's going to happen. Oh, that's, 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 yeah. that's what I'm leading up to here, mm-hmm. Bob. We're on the brink. The sold-out venue of the anti-Semite comedian uh, Diodone Mbala Mbala in Montreal. The cancellation of speakers like Benjamin Netanyahu or conservative pundit Ann Coulter on Canadian campuses because of threats of violence. The G20 and G8 riots. The race-based policing of the OPP in Caledonia. The list is endless. I'm predicting a very tumultuous decade ahead. I see economic collapse for sure. In fact, we're already there. A collapse we will all feel. I see more riots basically on a daily basis, as they're happening over in Europe on a daily basis, and even perhaps war. Well, and yes, seems the to so-called be in the stars, far eh? right will be to blame, as we'll call, so the so-called left and the so-called moderates, because as any student of history should be able to plainly see, all of these so-called elements of the political spectrum are all socialists, all of them. They're all competing with each other to rob us, rob from Peter to pay Paul as much as they can. They're all violent in nature, and it won't take much more for that violence to turn into full-fledged revolution. That will destroy our world as much as Hitler destroyed Europe only one lifetime ago. Wasn't that long ago? And the sad thing is that most people who share my prognostication would actually like to see that happen. 
They would like to see this violence. They'd like to see the revolution because they're absolutely ignorant of history. And they haven't experienced what it would actually be like to have to go through it. That's right. If they and got what they wanted, they'd be destitute, they'd be poor, they'd be dead. See, I never, I, was, I, I know how fortunate I am not having to ha- had, had to live through what my parents lived through in Eastern Europe. Right. You know, my grandfather died in a Russian concentration camp of starvation. I can't imagine dying of that in a civilized world. For you the know, same ideals. For these ideals, and you can look, and it's you can blame Hitler all you want, but look at these ideas and the philosophers. I don't and blame where Hitler. I from. blame Kant. Well, I blame the philosophers. Just y- what you said earlier today. You can be a crazy man, but if everybody believes that your your ideas are good, then you have to. They have to take some of that responsibility right. too, don't they? Are we done for today? That's a happy note to leave on. Yeah, really. Two hundred and fifty. End of the world. Yes. Well, we'll pick up on a lighter note next time around as we leave you for another week. Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. And to what do I owe the pleasure of this visit? Uh, not that there needs to be any reason. I... I'm with the Ministry of Propaganda. Oh, that's a wonderful branch of the service. Oh, what a job you people are doing. <laughs> I've always said, you people are doing more to end this war than anyone else. Clink, we've been looking at your records very carefully. I can explain that. That's not my fault. Although, technically, I was in charge of all the money at the officers' club. Lieutenant Kleinminster also had a key. Clink! And he... <laughs> Sitzer is talking about your perfect record in the camp. He is? Yes. What are you talking about? Was I talking about something? I don't remember what it was. (laughs)